to your home of all things South American soccer, an in-depth look at the action across the whole continent, providing you with a tactical, analytical and critical view supported by Pinnacle's unrivaled odds. This is South American Soccer Insights. Hi everybody, my name is Austin Miller, sliding into the host chair here on South American Soccer Insights. Great to be here, appreciate the invitation. I'm coming to you from Buenos Aires, Argentina, where the sense of a World Cup win is still wafting through the air a month later. I'm joined on today's show by Simon Edwards in Colombia, a country that did not qualify for the World Cup. Simon, you're also English and you didn't win the World Cup. How you doing? You okay? I'm, I'm wonderful. I'm wonderful. We got to the, Colombia got to the final of the under 17 women's uh, World Cup. And isn't that really what matters? So I'm very good. And we've got the South American Under-20 Championship over here. So, you know, there's there's some things to keep me busy. And a hard-fought nil-nil draw against the United States in a friendly that a lot of people definitely watched in Los Angeles this week. Frank Fabra still going at it at left back for the Columbia national team. I'm also joined on this show by Tom Robinson, who is in the United Kingdom, also English, as I already pointed out, did not win the World Cup. But Tom, you were happy for Argentina's uh, win for sure, right? Oh yeah, I was. Um, I was in probably the 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 country that was most second most happy that Argentina won and that England didn't win in Scotland. So I was joined by a big crowd of Argentinians, and you know I'm only months away from getting that Argentinian passport, so I am living vicariously through that victory and enjoying every single moment of that roller coaster ride. Well, let's go right into today's show, and we'll start with that. We'll go into a little bit of Argentina at the World Cup. We're also going to cover, as Simon mentioned, the Sudamericano Under-20 Championship that is happening in Colombia right now. And we'll touch a bit on the latest transfer news and also talk a bit about the upcoming Recopa Conmebol and the start of the Libertadores, which is coming right around the corner. But guys, it's been over a month since Argentina's World Cup when there's no need to necessarily go into the the blow-by-blow recount of what happened We don't have to necessarily cover what might have been the greatest World Cup final ever, potentially the greatest soccer match ever between Argentina and France in the final. But Tom, what impressed you most about Argentina's run to the World Cup victory? What kind of stood out most to you and and what was the thing that you kind of take away most from, from the World Cup triumph that they had? Well, I mean, I think when you look at the, the way that they got to the final, the, the suffering, I think that was a key theme that, I'm sure you know you will have seen there on the ground people going through the the ringer of it almost felt like they needed to go through that suffering experience to to make it worth it and make it um make themselves worthy champions so that was obviously a, a big part of it the clearly the, the sense of destiny that almost seemed to happen as soon as they lost to Saudi Arabia everything felt like right They've had this barrier, this obstacle thrown at them. It's Messi's potentially last World Cup. It's the first one without Diego, although he was very much a presence there, albeit in spirit. Um, But I think the thing that impressed me most um, was kind of how they reacted to the um, massive blow to their confidence with that loss and kind of constructed a winning team by dropping some of their big name players. You know, Lautaro has been an absolutely emblematic player during the Scaloni uh, regime. And also Perez has been such an important player as well. And kind of to realise, okay, we haven't got this 
midfield three that we would have liked to going into the tournament. Lautaro is a bit out of form, a little bit injured. Let's throw in Alexis, Enzo, Julian. And it was really impressive that Scaloni made those big calls as, as the game, as the tournament went along because he looked like he maybe his reaction to the defeat. Initially, I wasn't too convinced with the wholesale changes against Mexico, but kind of about halfway through that game, he kind of works out what the, the right formula is going to be and the little t- tweaks of Di Maria in the final and, and things like that as well. It was just, I think, a really impressive tournament performance in terms of dealing with the adversity and the the problems that can potentially come your way. So, yeah, it was just, there's so many things you can talk about, but I think that was the thing that impressed me most. And I think you you talked about it there, the, the initial loss to Saudi Arabia. From that point forward, every single match that Argentina played was essentially a final at the World Cup. Every match that they played brought the possibility of the World Cup for all intents and purposes being over against Mexico. And then after that, every single game brought the prospect of elimination. And so for an Argentina team that throughout the years, I think there'd been some valid questions about how they handled pressure, about how they handled adversity, to be able to come through that. And it's weird because they ended up obviously winning the World Cup and it was a fantastic triumph. But they still had issues handling pressure and adversity. And, and, and in almost every single match, especially in the knockout rounds, you know, save for the semifinal, they put themselves needlessly under pressure time and time again. They almost conceded an equalizer against Australia. They blew the two-goal lead uh, against the Netherlands. They played the really good the really good soccer against Croatia in the semifinal. And then, obviously, in the final, to, to go from, from winning to losing to winning to losing to, to winning all in, in one crazy amount of three hours. The fact that they dealt with the pressure and, and, and the adversity the way that they did. And obviously, Simon, Lionel Messi, for him to have won the World Cup and in that fashion and as Argentina's star player, but also with a tremendous supporting cast had to have been, you know, particularly satisfying for him. Yeah, of course. <clears throat> a huge, a huge moment for football, not just for Messi, for Argentina. But for football as a, as a whole, it was kind of the perfect end for the tournament. And also with, you know, Mbappe kind of emerging as such an important you know, player and being the, the next generation, it kind of felt very fitting that both Messi and Mbappe played such an important role in the final. Uh, but it was great. And, you know, as you mentioned, I was out there in Qatar and the Argentines definitely had a big presence. They kind of took over certain areas. There was uh, asadas, all that kind of stuff. And actually, I, I don't know how they got there. <laughs> I think it was a, a government initiative to get as many Argentines over there as possible because some of them were quite hungry um, and there were literally locals bringing them meat and stuff. Um, but it was obviously such an important moment for the country uh, and obviously a, a great tournament. But Austin, what was, it, what was it like to experience the tournament and the celebrations over there in Buenos Aires? Yeah, so it was my first World Cup outside of the United States. And yeah, it was an, an otherworldly experience. Uh, obviously, once in a lifetime type stuff. And and for Argentina to have won it made it all the more impressive. Uh, the, the celebrations were incredible. Um, I had the opportunity during the semifinal, the one moment of the tournament when Argentina made me feel comfortable, when they were 3-0 up against Croatia, I actually went outside my, I watched all the games in my apartment alone. I wasn't going to mess with any sort of voodoo or anything like that. Uh, but in the semifinal, when they got 3-0 up, I said, okay, I, I could go for a little walk. And 
the streets of Buenos Aires during an Argentine World Cup game are it's it's like a, a scene from an apocalypse film where everything is still going on, but there's nobody doing anything. You know, the buses are all running and, and everything and the stoplights are working and it's broad daylight outside, but the, there's literally not a single person on the street. And every single cafe or restaurant or store you walk by is, is closed down for the two hours during the game with a little sign in the window. And there's just a semicircle of employees crowded around a, a TV or a radio following the match. And then obviously the, the day of the final is just an, an incredible experience and for Argentina to have won and, and in the way that they won and the celebrations. And as you mentioned it, Simon, it was a, a significant moment for, for Argentina as a country, um, a country that has had political and economic issues over, over the past few years, a country that had fallen in love with this team and had wanted so desperately for this team to be successful uh, for them to have eventually been successful was was incredible, and and the way that they did it was was all the more satisfying to to handle the adversity, to beat a really good French team, to have, to have played France off the pitch in the first forty minutes of the final, and then the the ninety seconds in which France got back into the the, the game at two two, and then you know in, in in extra time to have taken the lead again and then given away a penalty, and then to have the stones to come back and win on penalties for the second time in the tournament was 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 really really incredible um to kind of close out the world cup talk tom i want to ask you is there one kind of moment above all else whether it be from the final or whether it be from the quarterfinal against the netherlands or maybe in the group stage is there one moment that kind of lives with you from from the argentina triumph that obviously you'll you'll always remember and think back on i mean it's got to be um, the Dibu Martinez save from Colomani yeah. in in that last minute of extra time. I mean, obviously, I've got that added love of Dibu because he, he plays for my club as well. So the fact that he was this hero for Argentina, it's I mean, you'll you'll know uh, as as well as anyone the status that he's held out yeah. there even before the tournament was like almost probably the only. Only Messi was held in higher regard for him, which which when I was there about a month before the World Cup, I was surprised to see just what a, a hero he was. I thought, okay, yeah, he, he'd be a bit of a cult hero after the Copa America. But for, for him to do that, the journey that he's been on in the last two, three years, 10 years, even if you want to you know, go back further, but to go from being not even in the question of being in an Argentina squad to be the guy that saved them on various occasions against Australia, obviously against Netherlands. Um, but particularly that save was as big, if not bigger than anything he produced in in the um, shootout. So that is huge. The I think there's so many images that have just been burnt onto my brain forever yeah. now. And, and also you get these, you know, at first it's, oh, a week ago we won the World Cup. Uh, two weeks <laughs> ago we won the World Cup. A month ago we were. So I think that's going to happen probably for the next three and a half years um, at least. Um, and it was just, you know, him spread out in a kind of handball save style. It's just one of those ones that will go down with so many other images there. And um, yeah, I couldn't, could not mention um, my, my favorite goalkeeper. <laughs> and I think one of the things that makes him so beloved is he is a quintessentially Argentine figure, right? Mm-hmm. Like, for all of the love that there is for Lionel Messi, and there is plenty of love and deservedly so, he's not necessarily a common Argentine person, doesn't necessarily behave himself like that, doesn't carry himself that way because of all the time. 
Debo Martinez is very Argentine. It is antics and the way he carries himself and the confidence and the, the swagger and all of that. And so he's a player that plenty of Argentines identify with, particularly younger Argentines who play soccer in that sort of style. So yeah, I, yeah, like you do that sort of stuff and, and, and there's that. And I think that's certainly something. Simon, for you, was, was there one particular moment that, that stood out above everything else? Uh, in terms of Argentina, I, I think, as you say, there were it was it, it felt inevitable. It was growing, and the way the team was evolving and growing. But there were also moments where it almost all went wrong. You know that that game against yeah. the Netherlands, where they they've been so focused defensively, so solid, so responsible, but you know so passionate, but also controlled. And then you know the the the, the pile up all the fat, all the players coming off the bench and like that, and it kind of felt like. At times, it felt like Argentina were sucking the opposition towards their goal. You know what I mean? Like, they, they were defending so well, and they were enjoying defending so much, that it kind of felt like they were kind of letting themselves kind of get in over, overwhelmed by the situation. But once they kind of hit that adversity, you know, the, the, the strength of character in the squad. So there were times when it kind of felt that the passion and the commitment and the importance placed on these games was almost overwhelming the Argentine players. But for them to kind of wrestle things back under control and get the result, it was uh, it was dramatic. Um, but it was it was a journey. It was definitely a journey. So yeah, yeah no, it, was, it was a great moment for, for Argentina and a great moment for football. And the result, I think, um, that will make the World Cup kind of stand out. You know, to Argentina winning yeah. it was very very important. I think you talked about it, Tom. But I think the penalty that Lautaro Martinez took to win the shootout against the Netherlands. I was not particularly confident. I had seen how he had played in the World Cup. And there was this sinking feeling of like, oh, no. Oh, no, it's Lautaro. He might miss. He's been really bad. And then for him to to have the confidence and to make it and to kind of have his World Cup moment was was good. The goal that, that Messi scored against Mexico, right as you kind of sunk into this oh, no kind of feeling for him to have one of those those magical moments. And then just the way that they played in the opening 40 minutes against France, um, the fact that they forced France into a double change before they'd even gotten to halftime because of how well they played. All right, let's transition and, and talk a bit about the Sudamericano Suvente, the, the under-20 tournament, the uh, kind of fertile ground for diamonds for South Americans who will eventually become stars. Not so good for Argentina at that tournament, Tom. And there's almost a sense of, it's okay. They won the World Cup. Uh, but probably the biggest disappointment of this tournament, only one win in the group stage for Argentina against a Peru team that, for my money, was the worst at the Sudamericano. A quick recap of what's happened so far, a quick kind of preview of what's to come, and, and then we'll go into to talking about some, some teams and players specifically. Uh, they played a group stage, two groups of five. Everybody played four matches with the top three in each group advancing to the final stage. Uh, from group A, Brazil, Paraguay, and Colombia advanced at the expense of Argentina and Peru. From group B, Uruguay, Venezuela, and Ecuador advanced at the expense of Chile and Bolivia. Those six teams will now play another group stage of five matches, and the team that obviously finishes top of the table will win the Sudamericano. And the teams that finish in second, third, and fourth will go to the Under-20 World Cup, which is in Indonesia later this year. So this is a big tournament. It's not necessarily as important 
who wins it. There's no big final. There's no necessarily big occasion, but it's a huge tournament for developing talent. It's a huge tournament for seeing what's to come. It's a huge tournament for, for developing style of play. Let's start with the disappointments, Tom, and let's start with Argentina. What went wrong for Argentina at this tournament? And could the answer perhaps be everything? <laughs> yeah, you took the words right out of my mouth there, Austin. It was right from the first game, it was just an uphill struggle. And unlike the senior team, they weren't able to rally and, and get themselves over the line. Um, that 2-1 loss to Paraguay, I think, was a bit of a shock result in terms of if you looked at the you know, the, the rankings before the tournament, the betting odds before the tournament, you would have had probably Argentina, Colombia and Brazil getting through the group. But it was a very good Paraguay side. Um, the fact, I think, also that every every team in that Group A had already played a game and Argentina were coming into it um, cold almost um, against a you know Paraguay side who, who were very well organised off the ball, really hardworking, some really talented players in there as well. Um, meant that straight away they're under the cosh. Then they come up against Brazil. You know, if they'd found themselves in that Group B alongside Uruguay, Venezuela, um, Bolivia, Chile, and um, who am I missing? Ecuador. <laughs> Ecuador there we go. Um, then I, I, I do back Argentina to have got out of that. They've got the players there. Um, but ultimately, a lot of... Criticism has gone towards Mascherano, and I think that's legitimate. But for me, the biggest thing was just the sheer number of um, individual errors that they made. I mean, in the first game, an absolute howler from Gomez Girth, um, who didn't do great against Brazil either. But um, De Lolo at centre-back gave away two penalties in the tournament. Uh, Herrera in the, in the crucial game against Colombia let the ball go through his legs. So... Yeah, they bookended their tournament with goalkeeping errors, with yeah. really, really bad goalkeeping errors. Like I went through them again today and absolutely every single goal that they conceded was their own fault and completely avoidable. I was also looking at the stats and in terms of XG against, they had the second best record of only like mm-hmm. 2.6 or something like that. And they had the second highest number of goals conceded. So you know, long ranges going in from goalkeeping mistakes, silly defensive errors. Um, That for me was, you know, a big, big, big thing. You know, you can point to maybe the injuries of Bonanotte, GI, key players for them, maybe some of the players not being released who would have clearly made them even better. But you can't really say that that team, you know, was in a position where they should, you know, they, they should have got through that group basically. Um, even though it was a really tough one and it's fine margins. Um, so yeah, not a good performance in terms of you would have liked, you would have expected at the very least for them to get through to the, the second round, the final round. I don't think that they would have been good enough to finish in the top four of that based on what I saw. Um, but at least you save a little bit of face. The one you know, thing that you can always fall back on in this tournament is even if it's not so much an, about the results as you, as you mentioned earlier there, obviously you want to get to an under 20 World Cup if you can, but crucially it's kind of player development. And right. I think there was enough players in there that you look at and say, clearly there's a couple here that will definitely go onto the national team. And there's several others who, okay, they didn't have the best tournaments or they weren't able to show their best abilities, but you know, 
I'm, I'm not worried about the level of talent in Argentina, basically. But yeah, it was um, it was tricky and just you know setting themselves up with that final must-win game against Colombia in front of a home crowd and, and a very good Colombia side at that. It was always going to be an uphill struggle. So yeah, very disappointing and, and certainly one of the biggest shocks. Simon, I'll come to you for for Colombia, and I'll let you talk there, and then we can maybe talk about uh, quickly about the the teams that have gone out, and then kind of looking forward to to what's to come here in this final round on home soil for Colombia. Obviously, I, I I joked with you earlier that the disappointment of not making a World Cup for Colombia at the senior level. This has been a good tournament for the Colombian under twenty side. Obviously, playing on home soil in front of home crowds has helped, but they've been good. What, what's allowed them to be successful, and, and what has kind of impressed you so far? Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of good attendance in the, in the stadium, particularly for the last two games against Brazil and Argentina. Uh, it was two, uh, three quarters full, uh, the, the, the Pascal Guerrero Stadium in Cali. So that was great. Uh, and as you mentioned as well, there's probably 250 scouts from every team. If you're listening to this and you support a team, their scout is here. Real Madrid, Barcelona, Man United, they're all here. So 100%. There are, there are for the the group B matches, Simon. For the ones that are yeah. that are at the Deportivo Cali Stadium, there are more scouts than there are fans there, unquestionably, and it's not particularly close. Hundred percent, hundred percent. No, no, no questions about it. Everyone's got a notepad, um, so I don't know if people are a bit bored doing some pictures or if they're they're scouts, but I think it's the latter. So hundred um, percent. Yeah. No, in terms of Colombia, uh, before the tournament, a lot of the headlines were dominated by Thomas Angel's omission from the side. He'd been an important player throughout the process. And that kind of you know, draws some of the headlines. And, and obviously with John Jader Duran going on to Aston Villa, that was also another, uh, another <laughs> there you go, Tom, a good player who obviously was going to be a key starter for Colombia. And there has been a bit of a gap in that number nine position. There's been a couple of players who potentially look like stepping in, but no one's really grabbed that role for themselves yet. Uh, Colombia have a good side, I think. Um, uh, Gustavo Puerta, for me, has been the best player. Uh, he's joined this week uh, Leverkusen. Uh, I think there was interest for a while, but this tournament has kind of confirmed in their mind, all right, he's ready to go. He's been very good in the central midfield. Um, the captain leading things, scoring an important goal as well. And I think Mantija in defence has been very strong. And then it's been a case of kind of three or four similar players, which is Colombia producing quite a lot of now. These similar to Jasa Espria, kind of these central midfielders who are quick and agile and tricky and maybe in the past would have been wingers, but are now seen as kind of very useful box-to-box, creative kind of central midfielders. Um, so it's been a bit of a shift and, and Colombia has quite a few of them um, in terms of Miguel Monsalve, who's been good. Uh, Diego Luna, who again has been playing from the wing, but is more, would be a kind of a 10 traditionally, but has been done well from the wing. Uh, Oscar Cortes, I like a lot, who's a Millonarios, has scored a couple of goals. Again, plays central midfield in this tournament, has been playing from the wing and doing very well because he has that speed and that agility. So I think what Colombia have is, I think this is a positive. They have these players who would traditionally have been kind of boxed into one certain role. Okay, you're a creative ball-playing technician, you're a 10. Or you're quick and agile and a little bit small, you're a winger. I think by playing them in different positions and having that multifunctionality, I think that's, that's definitely a positive. So um, I think Colombia started off slow. The game against Brazil, where I think they were the better side against probably the strongest team in the tournament, gave them a lot of confidence. Against Argentina, they got the goal early and then defended a lot more and got the, the result over the line. But I think that Brazil result with a packed stadium has given a bit more confidence to the fans and to the players. So I think they'll be competitive in the final rounds. 
despite a slow start, they, they've got through and now again, we'll, we'll see what happens. Tom, we'll talk about the teams that have gone through quickly in a little bit, but quickly on the teams that have gone out. We touched on Argentina, Chile, Bolivia, Peru. Anything that stood out to those those three teams? Obviously, diff- varying levels of disappointment. I think Peru were the worst team at the tournament. I think Chile not making the final round is certainly a disappointment for them. I liked a bit of what I saw from Bolivia. I think this is the best under-20 competition that they've had in quite some time. I think there's some positive signs for there. Anything you want to touch on on, on any of those three teams? Yeah, I definitely agree about Bolivia. I thought in every game that they played, they were well in it. And even that that 4-1 loss to Uruguay was actually really close. And They were know, winning. Yeah, they had the lead. Yeah, and and the goals came very late and Uruguay had to bring off the, the cavalry from the bench. And I think two of the goals were in injury time. So And there was a massive chance for the right-back Russia at, when it was 2-1. So that, that could have gone a different way. Um, there were players there that impressed me. Vizorael on the on the right with Rocha, really good um, partnership for the Bolivar duo there. There were, you know, there's um, something like Chavez in the middle. I liked a lot of as well. There was some, you know, defensively apart from that one game, they they were pretty solid as well. So, and another day, that's a team that that could have snuck through in in what was quite a presentable group for them. Chile and they were one, they were also. They were also attacking, right? It yeah. wasn't. Uh, they played some soccer at points in this tournament, which is a lot more than we've seen from Bolivia at other points. I, I, I like that Bolivar duo as well. I think Bolivar are a pretty interesting team Go as we kind of look into the Commonwealth Libertadores later this year. Obviously, they have the altitude in their favor, but there have been some good investment in that Bolivar team. They have some good young players coming through. They've gotten some of the bigger name Bolivian merchants that we've seen kind of always float around the Bolivian teams. You know, it's the same names every year. I think they're kind of an interesting team depending on how their group stage draw ends up going. But yeah, I like you. I liked what I saw from Bolivia. I think there were some positive signs going going through it. I thought Pablo Escobar's manager gave them something that we haven't seen from them really at any point at the youth level in, in the past few years. Chile and Peru, much more disappointing. Right, Tom? Yeah. I mean, I think for Peru, they... I mean, I think they, what was it, just one goal, the lowest scoring team in the competition. And yes, they were up against some very big and good nations. So there was probably an element of that, but the sheer lack of intent going forward, um, you know, number of shots on target was very, very low. Um, just shots in general. Defensively, they were pretty solid. So that's that's something to, to say for them. Um, Sanchez looks at like looks like a decent prospect there, and there are a couple of players who could who could play a bit, but no, they they didn't capture my imagination at all. Chile, I think, out of all of them, though, probably um, alongside Argentina, would, would be the next biggest disappointment because that was a presentable group for them. They had players who could have, um, if used better, could have definitely got them through to the next round. Um, the fact that Osorio and Asadi were rarely on the pitch at the same time, I think was a big, um, big miss for them because Osorio's pace on um, on the right was was always really good. And Asadi had that bit of bit of class about them. And, and, and again, I think that they were a little bit, I think the first two games kind of defined the tournament they were going to have. They, I thought they played Ecuador off the park for the first 30 minutes um, and then got hit by a sucker punch. And that kind of sucked the the momentum out of them. And then they got absolutely battered by Uruguay in the first half. And then after that, they just never looked like the same side again. So 
a bit of poor management, a bit of um, disappointing performances. Um, but yeah, they, they really should have got out of that group. Um, so disappointing from them. Yet again, at youth level, there doesn't look like there's too much to get excited about. Although, as we've mentioned, that you know there are there are some good players at least coming through there. It's just all about how they can then bring that to the to the senior setup, which is ultimately going to be how you define the success of these sides. Moving on to the teams that did go through, and now as we kind of look forward to this final round of group stage matches that will start this coming week, and we'll, we'll kind of go through the week. Simon, I think Venezuela are probably the most surprising team that have gone through. They were fortunate. They have not scored from open play in this tournament. A pair of penalties for a pair of 1-0 wins for them. Heading into this last group stage of six, I think it's pretty clear to say that they are the weakest team here, and any result that they get would be a bit of a surprise. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, I don't think it's a bad squad. I mean, there's obviously Tirosko Silgovia, the defence midfielder, who's a very, very good player. Already moved on to Sandori in Italy last year. Uh, and there's a few kind of high-profile players. Jose Riasco, who had quite a big move to, to MLS. He's been playing in, in Next Pro. He's quite a good number nine, who, who I liked as well. So there's some decent players, and obviously uh, Jerson Chacon as well. Um, and the very, very young attacking midfielder, David Martinez, who is 16 years old. Uh, and is already looking very lively. So I think there's a few players to keep an eye out on this in this Venezuela side. Uh, as you say, I don't think they've been particularly dominant in any of the games that they've played. Um, but obviously they've snuck their way through, and and it's a clean sheet now as we start you know start again. Uh, I think there's a few players in there definitely worth keeping an eye on. Um, but yeah, I mean not a side that's looked particularly as I say dominant in any of the games. Um, but they, but they made it through, and they just have to be one of the best four in a group of six, um, which. It's going to be challenging, but, you know, who knows? You get a win and then they could maybe sneak into a fourth place place. You know, we'll have to see. Stick with you, Simon, for Ecuador, the defending champions of this tournament. Of course, what have you made of them so far and what's kind of impressed you and how do you see them going forward here? Yeah, I don't think they've been as good as we've seen them in previous years. I think maybe the expectations of Ecuador are quite high now, given how successful they've been at bringing young players through to the, the senior side. I think for five or six years, they've been a highlight in South America. And obviously with the likes of Independiente del Valle uh, doing so well with their youth, you know, it, it's, a, it's a team who where expectations have risen quite significantly. I don't think they quite lived up to my expectations um, in this tournament. There doesn't seem to be a huge number of kind of real standout players, but they've got an interesting side. And I think this is, again, one who we could see grow into the tournament been a little bit in the knockout rounds, but... Uh, good, but not as good as perhaps I would have expected. Tom, Paraguay, I think it's fair to say they've been the not the best team at this tournament, but a surprise of this tournament, probably the most positive surprise so far. Yeah, definitely the the biggest or the most pleasant surprise. Um, you know, you, they're always competitive at this level, but they've they've got some real real class there. Um, Segovia is just a little genius. He kind of reminds me a bit of Andres D'Alessandro, just this scampering around, picking out some great passes and and being really dangerous for them. But they've also got a really solid base. I mean, I think Servin and Flores is probably arguably the best centre-back pairing, even if maybe on an individual level, they're not quite at the level of, of some of the centre-backs that we've seen. But they they work brilliantly. Uh, the goalkeeper, Gonzalez, um, is one of the better um, goalkeepers that I've seen as well at this tournament. I don't think it's been a great tournament for goalkeepers, but he's been one that's 
um, has pulled off some good saves and has generally looked pretty solid. Cantero at left back, again, really powerful runner, um, surges forward, very dynamic. And Diego Gonzalez, um, a really kind of sort of muscular, hardworking presence with some really nice feet as well in midfield. So all through the squad, they've got hardworking players and they are just so hard to break down and they don't mind playing without the ball. They've got brilliant shape. They work all day long and, you know, they've they've been really impressive. They kind of got their results early in the in the competition so they could rotate, meaning they're gonna be they should be pretty fresh. And yeah, I'd be I'd be very surprised if they if they didn't make it to the to the under twenty World Cup. So they've they've been really great. Um along with Uruguay who have I've always, you know, been a, a fan of the work that they do at youth level, but I wasn't expecting quite them to be quite this attacking and free flowing and just just really great to watch. So they look on course to be probably challenging Brazil for for a, a spot as the the champion of this tournament. Yeah, that was that was my question for you. Those kind of feel like the two favorites here, Uruguay and Brazil. Who do you back to to win this final group stage and, and to come out as champion? And, and when those two teams eventually play, how do, you, how do you kind of see that going out? Because I think that's probably going to be the best game of this final group stage as far as pure talent and, and what to expect on the pitch. I mean, based on what we've seen, I'd, I'd be hard pushed to, to go against Uruguay just because they've got such good strength and depth. They've got a really good spine there, um, you know, at the back. Uh, Facundo Gonzalez is a you know up there with the, the best centre back at the tournament. Um, Lucho Rodriguez, who's been signed by uh, Liverpool and Montevideo for 500k before the tournament and has now got a 15 million pound uh, <laughs> price tag slapped on there. He's been probably the player of the tournament so far. You know he can play all across the front three. Uh, right, centre, left. He's he can dribble. He can take people on. He can shoot from distance. He's he's got a bit of everything, and he's been um, the revelation um, for me as well. But they've got Fabricio Diaz, a guy who's already got well over a hundred senior games, just leading the midfield, and they've just got a, you know such a good spine there. A lot of the guys who played um, in the Peñarol squad, squad that won the under twenty Libertadores, so they're they're really good. I think Brazil you know, have been very impressive given how many players were couldn't well weren't allowed to to join the squad. Uh, and again, their centre mid midfield duo of Andre Santos and, and Marlon Gomez, teammate former teammates at Vasco, have just been absolutely essential to everything they do. And with Vitor Roque, there's the best striker in the tournament up front. I think that game between the two of them will probably be a similar pattern to what we saw between Brazil and Argentina in terms of Brazil saying, you know what, you can have a bit of the ball, come, you know, try and come through us, um, try and get through the, this amazing central midfield partnership that we've got. Um, Robert Renan at the back is fantastic for Brazil. I've, I've fallen in love with him a little bit. Um, so that's going to, that could go either way. Um and I think whoever wins that game should be um, should be crowned champions. But I do think Colombia and and the sort of grit of Paraguay can can cause some complications for a lot of teams here. And and you know it wouldn't wouldn't be a surprise to uh, 
you know, if, if one of those other sides did pop up and and uh, and shock us all, perhaps, especially with that home support for for Colombia, there's there's good strength and depth in that side as well. Simon, for you, between Brazil and Uruguay, and, and maybe as Tom said, Colombia, who who do you back as the favorite to to win this tournament? And then, kind of, who who are the four teams that that you think will will end up going to the Under Twenty World Cup? Yeah, I think Uruguay are good. I think, as I said, um, Brazil have these attacking and these 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 forward players who are so so dangerous that even when they're not in control of a game, they can still win a game. And I think that's going to be something, as you mentioned, the likes of Vitoroke, like these are these are match winners um, who will, will you know will take advantage of the opportunities that they have. So that's going to be an important factor. I think that's probably what puts Colombia out of the contention to be the overall winners, that they don't have these prolific goal scorers uh, shining at the moment. The goals have come from midfield, come from the support, kind of second strikers, that kind of stuff, which is fine. But I think there's a slight difference there. And I think Uruguay probably, for me, are the favourites in terms of, as you say, the balance, the control, the, the way they can dominate the games. But it'll be interesting. I mean, Uruguay are going to play Colombia tomorrow. Um, in the first you know, rounds of, of the next game. So I think if Colombia can get a positive result in that, then they'll put themselves in contention. Pinnacle have Uruguay as slight favourites, um, considering Colombia at home. They have Uruguay at 2.45 and Colombia at 2.88. So Pinnacle think it's going to be quite close. And obviously with the home support, also it'd be interesting to see with you know the slight altitude of Bogota, it'll be different conditions. Cali is, is yep. lower at sea level and it's warm. Whereas Bogota is unpredictable weather and some altitude, which often can be a difficulty for the likes of Brazil, Ecuador, uh, obviously much more accommodated, uh, used to it. So we'll have to see uh, Colombia as well, maybe slight benefits of that. But we'll see Paraguay, Venezuela. Uh, they have Paraguay at 2.1, Venezuela at 3.8. So quite confident that Paraguay will win that one. And then we have Brazil, Ecuador. Uh, Brazil strong favourites at 1.3, Ecuador at 8.46. So we can see where Pinnacle are. Um, they seem to think that Brazil are, are looking very strong. Um, and there's the sense that Colombia could potentially challenge Uruguay. So we'll see. That that feels about right for me. I think Uruguay are, are stronger than Colombia. But Colombia definitely have a growing spirit, perhaps slightly reminiscent of Argentina, we can hope, at the World Cup. Um, and they have the quality. So we shall see what happens. But it, it should be very interesting. Tom, for you, any of those numbers Simon brought up, any of those matchups stick out? Well, yeah, I think the the betting there on the Uruguay Colombia game is is close. There's not too much in it. I would certainly say that Uruguay are, are good good money there for um, for the victory. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I, th- I think Venezuela could, with the the style they've got against pa- uh, Paraguay, they could match up to them in terms of physicality. They're a they're a really tall, imposing side that can can get stuck in and. You know, I, I think there might be some some value in in the draw there between Paraguay and Venezuela. So, yeah, it's it's going to be f- uh, fascinating because again, we've not seen Uruguay up against a really good side yet. So there is a slight element of unknown as to see. Okay, they look really good, but let's have a look at them when they play against a good side like Colombia, like Brazil, like Paraguay. At least we know that Brazil, Paraguay, Colombia have been in you know uh, in some some scraps already. Um, and again, Brazil had luxury of rotating their squad in the, in, the, in the final couple of games. I do think the one thing that, again, to sort of give Uruguay the slight edge is I feel like they've got more options off the bench um, in attacking areas than Brazil. I think without Vitor Roque, Brazil 
don't look quite as dangerous in the final third. But again, you can never write them off. And um, at this level, there's there's a reason why they're they're so often the champions of the Sudamericano. So it's going to be really fascinating, um, especially as Simon mentioned with that that change of location as well, which which could, you know, throw a, a spanner in the works for some of the sides. The rule, as always, at altitude, take a hit. Never know what's going to happen. Just put that out there for everybody. Uh, Simon, some quick transfer talk. Any of the, the big moves that we've seen from Europe for South American players catch your eye over the past couple of days, moves that may happen over the next coming days as the window slams shut and, and kind of with the view towards the what's to come here for, for the rest of the European season? Yeah, it's going to be interesting. As I mentioned, you know, from Colombia, uh, John Jader Duran is obviously the big transfer uh, from Colombia going from the MLS, um, a player who I've liked a lot uh, for a number of years. He made his debut for my for my favourite team here in Colombia, my local team, Envigado, at 15, was given the number nine shirt at 15, was, was a very physical, um, very effective. For me, what struck me with Duran is, even at 16, he was a very complete target man, holding the ball up very well, com- competing with much older, much more experienced defenders, and then has that pace, 185, so good height. And then, um, But for me, it always felt like if he added goals to his game, he would be a top player. And obviously, the MLS initially found it a little bit challenging. But once he got, got running and got going, the goals were coming, and then he looked like a really top player. So for me, that's a really interesting one. Tom will maybe have some like, some thoughts on him going to Aston Villa, but it looks as though he's going to be playing an important role for them, given that they've uh, let another striker go. So that'll be interesting to see how he does. Um, as I mentioned, Gustavo Puerto, who I think has been the best Colombian player at the U20s, going off to Leverkusen, is a, is a big deal as well. So that'll be interesting for me. And then obviously Moises Caicedo is the big news story today. I mean, by the time you hear this, it may be resolved one way or another, but he's obviously a player that we've all been following closely since he was... 17 years old, breaking into the, the first team and the player I think we, we like a lot. Um, there's been obviously lots of comments in England. Is he just a midfield holder? You know, is, can he pass the ball? Um, while the, the fees mentioned are astronomical, I think we've probably seen enough over the years to know he's a, he's a very complete midfielder um, who is more than just a ball winner. So uh, it, it feels expensive, but obviously some vindication given that we've been singing his praises for a number of years and then now he's the most wanted midfielder, almost the most wanted midfielder. There's a certain Argentine as well who's top of the shopping list apparently hmm. over at Chelsea, you know, Tom? Well, yeah, I was going to mention that in terms of extremely eye-watering sums for uh, South American midfielders, Enzo Fernandez being the the big one that looks like he's on his way to Chelsea at the time of uh, recording for um, well over 100 and 100 million euros, 120, 130 million euros, something like that. Who knows what, what Chelsea are doing and how they're spreading that out across the, the length of the contract. But um, no, again, in terms of someone who we've seen on the world's biggest stage play a number of roles at a very young age and do them all very well, there's a reason why he's popular. Obviously, there's that extra World Cup performance um, tax that has been added on to that and the fact that Benfica don't really want to There's a Chelsea lose. tax too, right? <laughs> At this there's, point. A Chelsea, there's a Chelsea tax. There's a Premier League tax. There's a Benfica don't want to lose their best player it, halfway through a good season. I was I was chatting to some uh, Benfica fans um, earlier in, in the week and um, they they were saying that when they were watching the World Cup, like the group chat between them was like, 
oh, please, Enzo, don't stop being so good. We're going to lose you halfway <laughs> through here. But no, he, he's a player that is fantastic. I mean, I don't think any player is probably worth the sums that we're talking about here. But um, if that's what Chelsea are willing to pay, then ben, Benfica, I'm sure, will, will happily take that. And he is a player who has just progressed so much in the last 12 months. You know, he we've known for... A, a good two years or so before that, that, that he's a real player to watch. But at the start of 2022, I, I definitely didn't think he was suddenly going to be this goal-scoring midfielder. Um, you know, we, we all knew about the defensive midfield work that he could do. Um, but yeah, he's he's really kicked on in a, in a really impressive way and, and it's just taken those next steps up without missing a beat. So that's obviously a really big one. I think, as we've kind of mentioned with a, with a lot of these transfers here, the sheer number of young players and South American players going straight to the Premier League is a is a really interesting trend. Um, probably something that's got something to do with uh, Brexit and, and the rules about buying players and, and maybe clubs just looking into those markets a little bit more now. You know, you've as we've mentioned Duran, who obviously I'm really excited to see, you know, hopefully um, following the footsteps of Juan Pablo Angel. Um, but Buonanotte to Brighton, Charlie Alcaraz to Southampton, Maxi Perone to Manchester City. Um, um, even, I think, the the Nottingham Forest signings of Danilo and Gustavo Scarpa are super interesting for two different reasons. One, because Danilo's, you know, he's a, a young Brazilian midfielder who is good enough to be playing, at the very least, in a Europa League, if not a Champions League side. So the fact that Bournemouth have the buying power to, to attract a player like that is really impressive. And Scarpa being kind of someone who maybe we thought a European move had, had probably passed him by, but is super fun to watch. He's clearly made a big influence off the pitch with his, you know, cool personality, his skateboarding, things like that. So um, the fact that those two know each other from Palmeiras as well is, is going to be hopefully crucial in, into settling in with you know a couple of other Brazilians there as well, um, and you know that's that's just a few few that we've we've mentioned there. But um, I think one that that probably went under the radar that I'll just I'll finish off with will will be Alan Maturo to to Genoa. So he is someone who was going to be a starting centre back for Uruguay in um, the under twenties. He's left footed centre back, arguably one of the most talented young under 20 defenders on the whole continent and he's been snapped up by um the italians who are currently in in the second division but are pushing to to come back up and we could very much uh, see a, a kind of a similar path to what happened with christian romero there so um that's definitely one um that doesn't involve multi-million uh, pound deals but is is um a, a clever one and, and just shows that yeah South America is the the premier shopping destination of of clubs all over Europe and and beyond. João Gomes from Flamengo to to Wolves is another interesting one that that just got over the line that I think is has certainly piqued my interest. Um, one thing I wanted to to point out when we talk about Enzo Fernandez is is how about the bit of business that that River Plate have done here in, in Argentina and the the twenty five percent sell on fee that they've been able to hang on and. Uh, they were the exact opposite of your Benfica friends there, Tom, watching Enzo at the World Cup. They wanted <laughs> to just keep playing as, as well as he possibly could. And, you know, if those numbers are true and if that's a, a you know, 120, 
120 million for for Benfica. That's probably 30 million or so for for River, and that's you know a big amount of money for a South American club, particularly for a player that they had sold for for such a small fee. But the fact that they held on to that sell-on fee was a great bit of business for them. And you know, should we get to to, to June or July and River Plate are, are are knocking about and looking like Libertadores favorites, that sort of money will really help them kind of add a, a critical piece or two to to compete with with some of the big Brazilian clubs that we've seen. Let's talk about the start of South American club competitions this year as, as we kind of close this out quickly. We've got the Reco Pacanma Bowl, which will happen in February. Uh, was originally supposed to be the first couple of weeks of February, but was then pushed back because of Flamengo's participation in the Club World Cup, which will happen in Morocco over the coming weeks. Flamengo, champions of the Libertadores last year against Independiente del Valle, champions of the Sudamericana. Simon Flamengo still have one of, if not the best squads on paper in South America. They did fall to Palmeiras 4-3 in the Brazilian Super Cup, an incredible match this past weekend. How do you see Flamengo for, for 2023? Obviously, the new manager comes in. And what do you make of the, the two-legged matchup against Independiente del Valle in, in the Ray Copa? Yeah, it's going to be an interesting one. Obviously, you know, one of the the giants in terms of the personnel with incredible players, Pedro, Gabriel, up front, De Ascaeta, you know, it's a team full of stars. David Luiz still there at the back. You know, this is a, a superstar team against kind of the model for, for what South American football can be in terms of Independiente del Valle in terms of their youth development, in terms of their smart recruitment, in terms of their tactics, in terms of making the absolute most of what they have. So it's going to be an interesting one. Um, you know, like, I, you know, you put Flamengo favourites. Pinnacle, for example, have them at 2.22, while they have uh, IDV at 3.31 with the draw at 3.55. But Yeah, so that'd be the first leg, which is obviously in Quito at altitude. Kind of good value there for Flamengo, I think. Yeah, it's not bad. It's not bad. Um, but I think that also, I mean, obviously you mentioned the altitude and being a home leg, it's important factors. But I think it, it shows how well IDV have done when you compare the resources of the two sides to, to have, you know, Pinnacle believing that there's a, there's a real game in this one. And I think there is. And there is good reason to be so. But, you know, you talk about resources. They Flamengo have got a team full of minimum Europa League level players um, here in South America. Some could definitely have an impact at the Champions League. Uh, IDV will have some who can get to that level in the future uh, and then others who've been a bit of a kind of South American journeyman, but they've seen value in them and they've seen a place in their, in their system and brought them in. So it's two very different approaches. I think the Brazilian sides, as we've said, have become increasingly dominant because not only do they spend lots of money on lots of very talented, famous players, they also make them become a team and they get them at younger ages and they're, they're using the market very well. So it's, it's, I think the underdogs will be IDV. Um, I think South American fans around the continent increasingly are just backing whoever's up against Brazil to, to kind of uh, shake their dominance and their, and their confidence in the region. Um, and I think that will be the case in this one, but it, it will be a very interesting, I think, opener to continental football in South America at the club level. Tom, Flamengo's bench could probably compete for a, a final four spot in the Libertadores. If you just look at the team and then you look at the little names at the bottom of the team, that's a whole team of, of starters who could probably win this tournament. Um, what do you make of the Flamengo IDV matchup? They met, obviously, in what I guess would have been the 2020 Ray Copa after they both won continental titles in 2019. So a bit of a rematch in this tournament, in this 
championship in this two-off match, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, I mean, it's always always foolish to write off the Ecuadorians because you know they're they're a fantastically well-run uh, club, as Simon said. But I think over two legs, even if they can get an advantage at altitude in, in Ecuador first, you've got to fancy Flamengo. They're they've got such great quality there. You know, even pre- bringing people like Gerson back to the club, you know, that's <laughs> it's not a fair. And they've got all these fantastic young players coming through as well. You know, we've seen um, the 16-year-old Loran do really well at the Copinha. Uh, Matheus Franza looks like he's probably the next big thing out of uh, out of that squad as well. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a never-ending list of, uh, of great talents. And, and I think they're probably going to have too much. But, you know, I'll certainly be rooting for um, the Ecuadorians, that's for sure. And finally, guys, to wrap this up, as we said, the Conmebol Libertadores is back next week as well with the first qualifying phase. Not a ton of exciting matchups there, but then as those teams advance to the second qualifying phase, some big names get involved. Atlético Mineiro from Brazil, Fortaleza from Brazil, uh, Independiente Medellín from Colombia will be there. Huracan are the Argentine representatives. Simon, I want to kind of ask you to maybe pick out a team in that pool of, of first and second phase Libertadores teams. Is there a team that, that maybe you want to, to focus on and you think could could end up proving to, to be good value going forward and, and maybe if they were to get into the group stage could make some noise or even in those qualifying matches could, could have some success? Yeah, it's going to be very interesting. I mean, there's some some famous names in here, uh, some less famous names as well. Obviously, Atletico Minero is, is a giant club who are going to be coming in the second stage. They'll be placing against Carabobo, so I, I would imagine they expect to progress from that one. Uh, independent Medellin. I would hope they expect to progress. <laughs> They're against the Venezuelan club that probably have the budget of maybe one of Atletico's players. Yeah, and, they're, and they're, their name translates roughly to silly face as well, which is always fun <laughs> if you want to use Spanish slang. Um, yeah, so yeah, Minero obviously strong favourites. Um, in terms of the Colombian sides, I mean, there's two big sides there. Millonarios obviously have some good players. Oscar Cortez, one of the shining players in the U20s. They've still got Ruiz, who's a very classy kind of Hammers-style playmaker, if he's still at the side at the time. Um, so I think Millonarios will be one to watch. I think they were quite unlucky. They went out to, I think, Fluminense last year. Uh, looked very good, got a silly red card, and things kind of fell apart in the qualifying rounds. But they had a side ready to compete in the group stage. They didn't quite make it, but they're still looking pretty solid. Um, and they brought in a new striker. A 35-year-old striker, but, you know, he'll, he'll do the job. So they're, they're looking bad in Ruiz. Um, and then with Medellin, again, I think Medellin have recruited quite quite well. They've brought in a lot of wingers. So I think they're shifting their focus to play with more pace out wide, probably with the Libertadores in mind. Um, they, they have kind of a more a team with two, like, two strikers, a number 10, whereas I think they're going to play more with, with more width. They brought in um, Badaja. They brought in some really good flying wingers who are a little bit up and down, a little bit unpredictable. But I think when you're uh, against some of the big sides in Libertadores, having that speed to counter-attack, I think it's going to be important. And maybe we'll see Miguel Monsalve, who's been, again, another interesting player at the U20s, have a, have a bigger role for Medellin. So I think Medellin is one to watch. Um, and then, you know, we've got the Bolivians always ready, which is, which is nice for Dakan. Yeah. Maybe, uh, one thing to point out there for, for Medellin's side, they have a really accessible draw. Like, they should be making the group stage from that draw. They'll play the winner of, of either Nacional Potosi or El Nacional. 
that's a match that, that Medellin should be backing themselves. And then the spot in the group stage would come down to a match against Magashanes, who are a team that had success in Chile last year, but were also a second division side last year and always ready from Bolivia. Medellin should be backing themselves to make that group. For Missionarios, a bit more difficult. Their spot in the group stage will probably depend on a match against Atletico Mineiro, which would certainly be a, a difficult proposition for them. But they could at least get the consolation of a spot in Sudamerica on a group stage and could make some noise there. Have to see. Tom, anyone that stands out for you before we finish up? Well, I'm always going to be looking at the Argentinian sides and, and Uracan, um, you know, they're, they're a solid side. They're not necessarily the most pretty to, to watch, but Diego de Boy has got them playing um, playing well. A nice 4-2 win to start off the Argentinian season. And there's some good players there like um, Santiago Jesse in defensive midfields, a really good young prospect. Um, they've got um, the the Uruguayan Cocoro up front as well, who's who's um, yeah pretty good and has a nice moustache. So you know that's always that's always fun to see. Um, and if they can hang on to uh, Lucas Marocha, the the centre back, then they've got a good chance. They did um, lose Franco Cristaldo, who was their top scorer from midfield last season. To, to I think he's gone to Gremio, so that's a shame. But um, I think they'll. They'll be a match for anyone, and uh, you know it'd be good to see them in there. Other than that, I, I do quite like uh, the look of Boston Boston River uh, from Uruguay. If we're looking at the first round games, there they're one point seven four six with um, Pinnacle to win the game home game against Zamora, and they've got some really interesting young young talents there. They've got um, Kelsey, the, the the Venezuelan striker who's um, at the uh, Sudamericano. Emiliano Rodriguez as well, who's in the Uruguay squad. Alex Machado is, is a very good young player and, and a couple of guys who haven't quite made it in Europe, but at this level are, are pretty decent, like Emiliano Gomez, Austin Davila, Cristiano Oliveira. Uh, so there, there's some talent going forward in that squad. And, and, you know, it's a team that's produced the likes of Ronald Araujo in the past as well. So not the biggest name in Uruguayan football, but the fact they're just qualified for this is, is testament to how well they did last year. And, um, you know, I think Zamora will be a, a tough, tough challenge over two legs. But, um, yeah, if they get through that, then then they'll face up against uh, Uragan and, and that will be quite an interesting tie. Should be some interesting matches to, to kick off the Libertadores. And, and I'm sure as the tournament goes on, there'll be more content here on the show breaking down kind of as, as we get some more data points on these teams and, and kind of see what they're what they're up to get on. Anything else from you guys before we wrap this up? No, I think that's that's pretty much everything. Uh, as I say, I'd recommend everyone check out the U20 Sudamericano in the next week or so. Um, see who's interesting. And a lot of the players uh, will be on their way to Europe, I'm sure, in the future. So you can... Be, be the guy in the pub who's talking about the, the next big thing from Bolivia. And he's probably called Vaca because they always are called Vaca for some reason. Go for Vicha Royale. That'd be my backup. If it's not Vaca, it's always a Vicha Royale. Something along those lines. Uh, all right. Well, that's it from us on this show. Thanks as always for listening. You can find the latest odds and betting insight on Pinnacle.com, plus plenty of content on the Twitter at Pinnacle and the Instagram at Pinnacle.betting. Plenty of other sports as well, obviously. And the odds that we did mention were correct at the time of recording. 